This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, and welcome to Speaker for the Living. I'm your host, Seth Dare, and today we're going to be talking about the recently signed into law End Modern Slavery Initiative Act. Uh, to talk about that uh, policy, I, um, I have a guest, Cameron Reasoner. She is a research assistant at the Human Trafficking Center, which is how I know her. And she has also been involved in advocacy and promotion of this act. Hello, Cameron. Hello. So Cameron, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, especially as it relates to you talking about this act that's been passed? So I started working with International Justice Mission several years ago. Um, About three years ago, we started working on the End Modern Slavery Initiative Act. I work as their lead advocacy director for Colorado. Okay, can you tell people uh, what IJM is and how they got involved with this act? So International Justice Mission is a human rights agency working in nearly 20 communities throughout the developing world. IGM's teams of lawyers, investigators, social workers, and community activists partner with local law enforcement to protect the poor from violence and strengthen public law justice systems. Originally, Senator Bob Corker got very interested in the idea. He's from Tennessee, and several of the students in one of their local colleges had gotten very involved with International Justice Mission. So, since he heard his constituents, he decided to look into the issue a little bit more closely. He went to a couple of our offices throughout the world just to give it a good check out and decided that he wanted to draft up the End Modern Slavery Initiative Act. All right, and we will tell you the story of that act in the second part of this program, but first we're going to tell you about the act, and it has a special relevance for organizations because it relates to funding. So you may or may not know, but there are only a few national laws specific to trafficking, most notably the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, originally passed in 2000, which we call the TVPA. That's the one that made uh, force, fraud, and coercion the the more psychological means of control, something that's illegal and part of trafficking. More recently, there was the executive order for the federal acquisition regulations. And then there are other tools that people may use uh, on a state level or other levels, whatever it takes sometimes to convict a trafficker, which means that sometimes the traffickers are convicted under laws that aren't related specifically to trafficking. But also, uh, there isn't as much funding as you would expect for trafficking-related issues. You And uh, when I first heard that, I was surprised because you hear about human trafficking Almost everyone agrees, I mean, well, publicly everyone agrees it's a scourge and it's horrible and it's evil. So we all want to do something about it and we see people talk about it and we hear about people being rescued. So it sounds like all these resources resources are being thrown directly at it. 
and really not as much as you think. And a lot of the focus is on sex trafficking and child sex trafficking, which are awful and should be well-funded. Uh, labor trafficking doesn't always get as much funding, which is you know, one of the concerns of, that people like myself have is we would like to see more money put toward ending labor trafficking and recovery of labor trafficking victims. So this particular law is a, a means of providing more funding and setting up more funding. And I will let Cameron talk about that because she has been involved with the process. So the EMSI Act was introduced by Senator Bob Corker in February of 2015. So it's been a bit of a long road. Um, originally, it passed unanimously out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The original bill established a grant-making foundation that would be eligible to receive funding from both private and public donors. Originally, it authorized 250 million U.S. contributions over the course of seven years to this public-private foundation. But now, due to some timing constrictions, we realized that it would be best if we supported a provision authorizing the End Modern Slavery Initiative to be embedded in the Senate version of the National Defense Authorization Act. It would be innovative in several important ways. First, it would prioritize the rescue of slaves, the apprehension and prosecutions of perpetrators, and the protection of survivors. Additionally, is set up as a public-private entity that allows it to receive contributions from the private sector and other donor governments. And thirdly, it requires data gathering and measurable reduction of prevalence, so we invest in programs that are actually provenly working. So Cameron, as I understand it, by reading the law, this is going to set up a foundation, and that foundation is going to get funding. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? So it's going to be a public-private interaction. They will be taking donations from both sides, but currently the U.S. government in fiscal year 16 and 17 have given $25 million. $25 million as the initial seed funding? Correct. Is it going to be funding every year then? As far as has been committed, that is the plan. So I imagine this will have relevance to any agency, like an NGO, who needs funding and wants to combat human trafficking. So how will they get funding, or when will the foundation be ready, or where is everything at right now? So since this is a grant gifting foundation, they're currently in the process of setting it up. The detailed process is still being hammered out, but currently they're seeking a CEO and they're staffing the foundation. Once that's set up, the NGO will go to the organization's website and actually apply through them. One thing to note, though, is that the funding will be heavily focused in Asia, Southeast Asia, India, and South America, where human trafficking has been most obviously prevalent. Now, when uh, some people from the Human Trafficking Center initially heard a presentation about this, uh, you happened to be that person, uh, one of the people presenting, correct? Correct. And... There were some questions from uh, one of our staff members about the viability of this. It comes down to that one of the priorities in Section 7 is to support programs and projects that seek to measurably reduce modern slavery and targeted populations within partner countries and key jurisdiction of other countries 
of at least 50% over a seven-year period. How you measure something matters. What, how you set up a baseline matters. So in this case, if we're going to say you need to reduce modern slavery by 50%, that means you have to have a baseline and you have to have a way of measuring it. And then so if I were to say, well, that sounds nice and all, but what kind of numbers are you going to use? How, knowing that we're often talking about an underground criminal problem, how is this going to be measured? How is this going to be determined based on what we know right now? So like I said, currently they are in the process of seeking that CEO and the staff. So once we get those positions filled, I do believe that those details will be hammered out. I believe that the focus on the numbers and on the reduction by over 50% is just an effort to focus more of the energy on research since monitoring and evaluation of human trafficking, like you said, is so underground and so understudied. So originally the idea was that the organization would come in and give their method of how they were going to monitor and evaluate their baseline and then um, further seeing how they were going to reduce trafficking within their area. Once they established that for a year and received funds, they would show that they had reduced it within that year by X amount. And over the course of seven years, they would receive their funds as long as effort was being made and actual progress was being shown. Right. And even given that this, some of the specifics of this we have yet to look at because they, as you said, they're figuring out the foundation, why do you believe this is an important law even with that being a little bit gray? Why do, why do you believe in this law? I believe that it is another tool um, for the people to use, whether they be NGOs or governments. The Trafficking in Persons Office was a great start on giving out grants, but they've been focused mostly on governments, whereas the EMSI will be focused more on the NGOs that are actually on the ground doing the work. Do you know what types of organizations might be eligible for funding, or will that be determined later? Like, will it just be uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, for those of you not familiar with the term? Will it just be those, or will other government agencies be able to receive funding? As far as I understand, the idea is that it would be for non-governmental organization NGOs. Um, but as you said, it's still getting hammered out. So when we start talking in an international context, an NGO is essentially a nonprofit, but in, when we talk about them outside this country, we often refer to them as NGOs. So I would figure it would be easy to pass anti-trafficking laws because who doesn't want to end trafficking? And one example of that is there was a law in California, the California Supply Chain Transparency Act, which did pass and where people in Cal or, or organizations past a certain size have to say on their website, have a link that this is how we're, we're addressing some of these issues. And there was an attempt to make a national version of that law, and it never got out of committee. And I couldn't tell you all the reasons for that, but it shows that just trying to pass a law, and, and in that case it was just saying we're going to mandate some form of transparency, that that didn't make it anywhere. So how did this bill become law? Well, originally it went to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and like I said, it passed unanimously out of that. 
And like you said, it, it you would assume that this was an easy thing to pass through. When it comes to representatives putting their names onto a bill to make it a law, a lot of them are concerned about different politics. Luckily, this bill gained a lot of support, bipartisan. Um, it had over 40 co-sponsors, which if you're not familiar with, with how that works, that basically means that when it came into law, their names were on it as supporting it. Um, this was a big deal, especially in the recent years with budgets and how concerned the U.S. is on making sure that we're not exceeding our funds. So for us to have 40 co-sponsors back in June before this went to its final committee was very exciting because we were able to see a lot of momentum that had been garnered over the past couple years on it. Well, this was initially sponsored by Senator Bob Corker, Republican from Tennessee, and it passed the Senate, went to the House, passed the House. It was originally going to the House, but then there okay. was the budget freeze, as well as other things that ended up being more priority, so it got pushed off the docket for a while. Um, we expected it to be to the House a lot quicker than it mm -hmm. was, but as politics go, you take things as you can. Okay, so it went, the Senate version went to the House and didn't end up passing the House, is that correct? It never actually was presented on the floor of the House as its own act. Oh, um, it was it. embedded into the Senate version of the National Defense Authorization Act. They passed it. It was great. Um, and then the House saw a version of it, and went, it went to committee and was eventually passed through that as well once the National Defense Authorization Act was passed through. That's S2943, the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2017, with 614 amendments. So an act ended up being an amendment. I think a lot of listeners might find that a strange thing. It's just the politics in play. Sometimes it can pass on its own, and sometimes it has to be nestled in under other, other acts. So this was a, a bipartisan effort? Correct. Which is great in the current Senate, and you know, it goes without saying, it was a very divisive election year, and it's nice to see that our Congress can actually work together for some things. So hopefully that's encouraging to some of you. So is there any more to that story? I imagine there were probably some revisions and stuff along the way. Yes, it um, originally it was a bit bigger of a fund that we were trying to raise. We were garnering for the government to give approximately 36 million per year, but what it ended up coming in at was 25 million. So still sounds like a very large portion, but when you actually look at the budget, it's a very small sliver that luckily that we were able to get. But we still mm -hmm. encourage, at least with International Justice Mission, they are pushing for the government starting in fiscal year 2018 to pledge that full $37.5 million per year. And with funding for the foundation, is some of that going to come from other sources other than the federal government? Correct. So there are other governments internationally that are pledging to it as well as private donors. In the original act, we were looking for the U.S. government to have 51% of the money 
pledged, and then the rest would come from other donor governments as well as the private sector. That way that there was a majority still held within our government. But as it stands right now, we're still setting up the rest of the organization. So we'll see how it pans out. And uh, where is your involvement going from here with this? Well, from here, we are currently celebrating since this just passed on December 8th was when we got the news. And then our next step is just to see if we can petition the government to turn the tip office into a tip bureau, which is just politics at play again. So in the show notes for this particular podcast, we'll include the information publicly available that relates to the act, such as uh, the National Defense Authorization Act linked, so you can take a look yourself. And when there is more to be said, and uh, this becomes more relevant to NGOs, we will make sure to let you all know. So thank you, Cameron, for joining us today. Thank you, Seth. All right. Until next time. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.